You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. People um, through their journey through the wilderness. And so we're going to continue in that series that this morning. Uh, and we'll be in Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 27. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there together with us. Um, if you didn't bring a hard copy of the scripture, but you would like to be in one, there you can find a, a Bible under a seat around you. And if you don't own one at home, you're welcome to take that one home with you today. Um, again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 27. So once you are there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Exodus chapter 18, verse 13 says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great manner they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. In any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to say happy Father's Day to you, and uh, we're really glad that you're here. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors of the church, and so if it is your first time, we hope you enjoy yourself and uh, have fun with us this morning as we worship the Lord and get into the Word. So, like Lauren just said, we've been in the book of Exodus. If you were here last week, then you know that chapter 18 is kind of one story uh, that has two parts to it. And so, last week, we talked about the first part of the story, where Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes with his, ch- with his wife 
uh, and with his children. And by his, I mean Moses' wife and Moses' children. Uh, and there's kind of a family reunion moment, but kind of the apex of that story is, is Jethro's, I guess you could call it his Old Testament conversion or recognition of Yahweh as uh, a, the supreme God, the true God, the one true God over all the other gods. And it's this great moment that he has with his son. And, and if you remember, uh, last week I said there's kind of a, a great reversal that happens in that story where you think the father-in-law comes and there's a dispensation of wisdom and grace and all those things from father to son. But there's a reversal that through the son-in-law, the father-in-law comes to know something that he didn't know. Uh, But I warned you last week that that's going to come back and flip again. (laughs) And so now you're going to get the Jethro taking the seat of authority as a father to Moses. uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And so I want to focus this morning on biblical fatherhood. And I want to spend some time uh, on that topic and and, and, and through the interaction with Jethro and Moses, kind of talk about some of the principles characteristics, and then hopefully get to uh, the way in which we can accomplish it. But I want to say this before I start. For those of you who aren't fathers or you aren't married or for the gals in the room, I'm asking you not to check out because uh, not only does the Word of God always relevant and the Word of God is always going to be beneficial, but also uh, specifically the role of fathers in our lives have shaped us, will shape us, and there's really no way around that. Whether it's good or bad, absent or present, You know, we can't get away from that. And so this is applicable to all of us. And then particularly, I want you to stay with me because at the end, my prayer is that there's a culminating factor in this topic of fatherhood that every single Christian, every single human being needs to hear. Um, Having said that, I want to say this, as is true of every text every single week when I get up, there's a lot in this that I'm not going to be able to cover. It's a a really chalked full chapter here. Um, and we're just going to be focusing on the fatherhood aspect. But I'm believing that if you stick with me, you'll see the essentialness of the father-to-son interaction here and what it means for all of us. It'll, hopefully it'll be challenging, encouraging, and, uh, and we'll leave out of here uh, worshiping the Lord. So before I do it, though, what I want to do is I want to pray for us. I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. And so if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, we come to you now with our hands open, our hearts open, our ears open, and our eyes open, and we ask that you would use your word to do supernaturally miraculous things in our lives. Through something as ordinary as this book, you have done this for thousands of years, and so we confess to you and proclaim in faith now that this book is anything but ordinary. Uh, because it speaks and leads us to you, our extraordinary God. And so we humble ourselves beneath the words of this book. We ask now that we would see them as not merely good advice, but as valuable, holy, sacred truth. And, and let that truth land on our hearts this morning, my God, and produce the 30, 60, 100-fold harvest that you have promised and commissioned to happen. We are so grateful that we can be confident you will do a good work. And on this Father's Day, I just particularly pray, my God, would you uh, rise up in the men of this room a desire to fulfill that commission, not just to be earthly fathers, but spiritual fathers as well. Give us a heart for that, my God, now we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, before we get into the text, let me kind of give you a little preview. So first thing I want to do is, is take out seven principles uh, from this text of Jethro's taking the role of father with 
Moses here. He's the father-in-law. He takes a fatherhood role. I want to talk about seven major principles I see here. That's kind of the doing of the text. Then I want to move on. There's this, there's this portion of the text where Jethro tells Moses, these are the kind of guys you need to look for to share the load with you. There's four character attributes or character, characteristics of masculinity that he puts there. And I want to talk a little bit about those. And then I want to bring it around at the end and talk about the one way in which the Bible gives us to accomplish any of this. Um, and so you got seven, four, one. I got a lot of work to do. I'm going to do my best, okay? And we're going to get out of here uh, in the name of the Lord. So let's go, chapter 18, verse 1. Uh, and let's read a little bit, and then we'll start to talk. So, sorry, verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is it that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you, and you're not able to do it alone. And so you get this moment where Jethro steps in, and first half of this story is the interaction in the evening. The second half is on day one, he observes his son-in-law actually interacting with the people of Israel and functioning in a role that Jethro has never seen his son-in-law function in. you got to understand, Jethro meets Moses in the middle of the Midianite wilderness, and he marries his wife. He's not yet the Moses who leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's just this guy who got exiled from Egypt, and now he sees him as the ruler of this people, it's 1.8, potentially 1.8 men, women, and children, million men, women, and children, and he's judging all day long, and he's watching this happen. And he questions him about the practice. He says, what are you doing and why are you doing it? And Moses gives him an answer. And Jethro immediately recognizes that it's not good. Tells him this thing you're doing, you're messing this up. This is the, by the way, if you're wondering where the reversal goes back, this is it. (laughs) Because what you're doing is kind of messing this up. Now, something a pastor of mine once told me, and it's a discipleship principle for men that has helped me for years. It's helped me to realize it in myself. And you can pretty much take this to the bank. He said this to me, Court, men are typically more comfortable admitting any, almost any wrongdoing or failure in their life so long as it's not admitting a failure of competence. <laughs> and I thought about that for a little bit, and I had to think a little bit longer, well, what does he mean? And here's what he means. And wives, just keep your eyes straight. You don't have to look at your husband, because that'd be weird. Uh, there's a reason that there are you know, movies and, you know, comics and that talk about the, the, I guess the archetypal moment where your husband's on a, on a trip for vacation and he will not stop for directions. No matter what, it doesn't matter if he's driving you to the ends of the earth. He's not, he's, I know where I'm going kind of thing. And the reason is because as men, typically, not that we're all, all that crazy about saying we're wrong about anything, but the, the top thing we're least crazy about saying we're wrong at is something that we feel as though we ought to be good at or we're called to be good at, and we're not doing very good at it. Listen to me, guys, before you check out on me. I'm not saying you step on, let's say, the tennis court, and you never played tennis, and you play Rafael Nadal, and you think you should be good at it. That's not what I'm talking about. Because we could probably be like, yeah, I'm going to get destroyed. But I'm talking about the thing that you feel like you ought to be competent at. It's really tough to say, I'm not competent at that thing, or I'm not, I'm not operating competently in that thing. And so usually we'll do anything we can to maneuver and massage the incompetencies on why they happen. They're called excuses. 
and we make them regularly. That's what's happening right here in the story of Jethro and Moses. And I want you to recognize if Moses is not to engage with this humbly, men, put yourself in this situation. Your father-in-law comes in and says, after you've just had this moment with him, you know, and, and he says to you, hey, what you're doing is wrong, terrible. What you're doing is not good. You're going to ruin the people. You're going to ruin yourself. You're going to have to ruin this whole thing. You got to think, if Moses is anything like me, he's like, well, you're going to ruin your whole life until I told you about God. So how about that, you know? Men, you guys know how you might feel about this, right? It's not crazy about anybody coming in telling you what you might not do, much less your father-in-law, because, you know, Zipporah is probably reminding Moses of all the things that Jethro is better than him at and all that stuff. So it's probably not great that he has this feeling. And the reason that I wanted to mention this before I get into any seven principles, because this is the first hurdle, men, that we have to overcome. And that is, in order for us to glean from this text, we have to first acknowledge and permit the possibility that we don't already know all the answers on how to be the greatest fathers, the greatest men. And we don't already already know that that thing. We don't already know all the answers, and maybe we can glean something from the Word of God. Now, I'm not asking you to say that to your wife. Just say it to yourself, and later you can say, yeah, I already knew what Court was going to talk about. Okay, that's fine. But for me, in your heart, say, maybe I don't know everything, and then you can really jump in. So what are the seven things that you can observe right here from Jethro right off the bat? Number one, fathers make it a habit to observe the lives of their children. Fathers make it a habit to observe the lives of their children. Verse 14 accounts, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, then he said, what is it that you are doing for all these people? So when Moses is looking out for everybody else, and when everybody else is looking out for themselves, Jethro is looking out for Moses. You catch that? Jethro is looking out for Moses when nobody else is. This is convicting for me because I often get so caught up in my mind and what I got to do for the day. My wife will tell me lovingly all the time, I'm the least observant person in the world. I walk into a room and I walk directly over seven different things that are on the floor, kids, dogs, cats, to get to where I'm going. And why did you miss all of that stuff? And I wasn't even thinking about the room I was in, much less the things I was stepping over. And here, we see that Jethro is the opposite of that. Men, fathers, we must aim to know our wives and to know our children in a unique way. And this is impossible unless we're engaged, unless we're present in the moment that we're in. This task of knowing your children often gets relegated to moms, and there's a reason for that. It's because moms seem to have kind of a sixth sense when it comes to their children. You know, they know things about their kids that you didn't know. It's weird sorcery they got going on. I don't know what they're doing. But you know what I'm talking about when moms know things intuitively. I think that's a gift from God. But what I want to say to fathers is that doesn't mean that we can simply abdicate, but instead we must know deeply our children and our wives and to be watchful. That call to be watchful in the Old Testament and the New were to the elders and the people, the men of Israel, to be watchful, stay on guard. Because they had what was literally called watchmen in the night. They would stay up all night making sure there weren't enemy armies that were going to come in and take over the city. And if they fell to sleep, they were derelict in their duty. And this is a call of fathers. Number two, fathers ask the right questions to help guide their children. Fathers help guide their children by asking the right questions. Verse 14, So when Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing for the people, he asked him, what is it that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? So Jethro doesn't rush in with advice or counsel or commands first, but he intercepts Moses with inquiry here. 
Now, I want you guys to think in your mind, who else does this in the Bible that you know of? Well, first thing that comes to mind is Jesus. He often asks questions of his disciples that you know full well he knows the answers to. He asks them questions. How are we going to feed all these people? Jesus knowing that he's going to turn a little boy's lunch into feeding 5,000. But he did so, the Bible would say, so that he might test Philip to get Philip's answer on why and how he's going to be able to feed all of these people. He asked the woman at the well unique questions to figure out something that he already knew, namely that she already had six men in her life that weren't her husband. You know, these are the things that Jesus will talk to Nathaniel about what happened at the fig tree so that Nathaniel knows that he knows what happened at the fig tree. And fathers, we do the same thing because asking questions of our children is an essential way to teach and shape them. It not only confirms to them that you're watching, but that you're interested and invested in them beyond merely just an observer. You know, one of the best things for your kids to know is that you know. And a question's a great and unassuming way that you can let them know that you know. It's what God does to Adam when he asks him, Adam, where are you? Can we all agree that God already knew where Adam was? like the worst person to play hide and seek with. God knows where Adam is, but he says, Adam, where are you? And this questioning continues throughout the entirety of the interaction. Then he says, who told you that you were naked? Let's all agree God knew it was the serpent. Who told you you were naked, Adam? Why'd you do this thing? And of course, Adam says, well, if you hadn't given me this woman, this would have been, I would have been better off. Then Eve says, well, if you hadn't sent the serpent into the garden, I mean, of all the animals, why the talking serpent? And they blame all the way down. But the questions were asking the why behind the what. It's not, merely the, it's not merely addressing the behavior. It's asking, why did you do what you did? Which is important for children. Number three, fathers, speak with clarity about what's right and wrong, good and evil, wise and unwise. Speak with clarity about what is right and wrong, good and evil, wise and unwise. Listen to verse 17 through 18. Jethro says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. What you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out. The thing, the, the thing is too heavy for you, and you are not able to do it alone. Now, men, I want you to just put yourself in the situation. If your father-in-law shows up to your job and says, you're not doing a good job, what you're doing is going to wear your employees out, and also it's going to wear you out. You can't do it alone. You're going to destroy this thing. Now, you're not going to be crazy about that. I'm just going to tell you right now. And yet... Jethro doesn't mince words. Fathers, if you know something is right and you refuse to impart it to your children, you're not helping them but harming them. I've heard this many times from fathers. I want to let them make their own decisions or I want to let them come to their own conclusions. I've heard fathers say that particularly about faith. Like one of the things I don't want to do is push it too hard on that. Here's what I want to tell you. No, you're not helping. You're abandoning them in an area where they need you the most. And at a time when they need you the most, they don't have a guidepost. And if you're not one, listen to me, someone will be. Someone will tell them. Someone will not be as laissez-faire as you are. You're like, no, I just want to kind of figure it out. Guess what? Other people, he'll help them figure it out. Other people already have a plan to help them figure out all the things that you're saying. Well, I guess they could figure it out on their own. Aunt, someone's already decided. They've got a written down plan, better than yours probably, on what they can do to help. So no, we must speak with clarity about these things because this is the call God's given us. Number four, fathers require obedience of your children. Now listen to this one. This is a cringeworthy one from your father-in-law. Verse 19. Now Moses, obey my voice. When's the last time you heard that one, men, from another grown man? Now listen to me. Obey what I tell you. Would that go over well? Like, I don't know, having drinks with the buddies of soda, you know, soda drinks. 
Obey my voice. I'll give you advice and God be with you, he says. If you're a father in the room, you must come to grips with the fact that you are not merely a friend of your children. You are not merely a counselor of your children. You may serve those functions secondarily over the course of your lifetime, but you will always be and primarily be a father forever. From this moment forward, that's primarily what you will be always, and that's how God designed it. When you are one day 70, by the mercy of God, and 80, and your child is 50, 60 years old, you will still be father first. It will never change. And as father, you must follow the lead of your heavenly father, who does what? Your heavenly father requires obedience of his children. So we must require obedience of our own children. It can't be, listen to me, that we merely observe and ask good questions of our children. You know, it's, you know, the Socratic method in our house only. Okay, that's fine, and it's even good. I used it in the, in the example that, Mo, that Jethro does this. But we must also require obedience to our words, not as gods ourselves, but under the authority of your heavenly Father who is God. Jethro doesn't say, I'm God. He says, obey my voice, listen to my advice, and the God of heaven will be with you. He's saying, I'm not God, but under the authority of God, I'm telling you, you need to obey what I'm telling you. Now, I know discipline's a cultural landmine. A lot of dads don't want to tread into this because there's a lot of people in this world right now that say, no, you don't need to discipline your kids. That's child abuse. You know, that's, you're just being too harsh on your kid. That's not right. We got we to rid the world of that. I just want to read to you what the Bible says about discipline. This is Hebrews chapter 12 and starting in verse number five. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's get beyond culture. See what the Bible says. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, what? The one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Listen to this rhetorical question that you're never going to see on Twitter. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's rhetorical. None. If you're left without discipline, here's another one not popular, in which you've all participated. You're illegitimate children. You're not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, that being earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Key verse For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So, the Bible seems to record that discipline is not merely an an option, it's a must for fathers. Now, I know that that there's a tendency to be like, I'm going to let your mother deal with that, but the Bible seems to say, talking specifically to fathers here, that you've got to have an engagement in this. Now, I don't have seven steps on, you know, timeouts and spankings, okay? I'm just telling you, the Bible seems to say, if you don't discipline, then maybe you're not treating your children as legitimate children of yours. You've got to care about the outcome of their lives, which is impacted by right and wrong and discipline. Okay, before I get in trouble, number five. Fathers, instruct your children in God's way without provoking or demeaning them. Instruct your children in God's way without provoking or demeaning them. Notice that Jethro here doesn't come in and say, Moses, I mean, come on, dude, you really think this is going to last? How in the world did I give my daughter's hand in marriage to a guy like you? It's like, I'm worried about my grandsons. Is this how you're going to treat them? He didn't do that. He didn't come in browbeating, smacking them around. He didn't go over to Aaron and be like, Aaron, what is your brother doing? 
Or maybe in the more Christian way, go, we got to pray for Moses, Aaron. Come on, let me talk to you about why. You guys ever experienced this one? Nobody? Okay. In your home group, we need to really pray for, Aaron, for Moses. Just some things I've been noticing. He doesn't. The instruction that he gives is not browbeating. It's not mockery. It speaks to the point and it speaks clearly. Listen to me, fathers. The man who mocks his children when he instructs them mocks himself. The man who dispenses shame on his, on his son or his daughter dispenses shame on himself because they're an extension of you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 4. Listen to what Paul the apostle says to particularly fathers because he kind of knows dads. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The reason he says this is because if you ever hung out with guys together, we typically make fun of each other. It happens. I'm not saying it's godly. I'm just saying this happens. It tends to happen. The more guys that you get together, the worse it gets. You know, it's like a fire adding more sticks to it, the hotter it gets. That's what happens. We add more guys together, more making fun, more poking fun. The jokes become worse. I don't know why this happens. It just does. And, and, and guys are just don't even want to look at their wives. They don't want them to know this. What I'm telling you is the truth. Okay, this is facts. Paul knows this and he says, if you treat your sons like this, you're harming yourself. If you look at your son and you make fun of him rather than instruct him, if you try to get a laugh rather than help him, you're harming yourself. We have to be careful not to poke fun. We have to be careful not to provoke our sons and our daughters, but to instruct them in love. And also, we should probably figure out why we do that to each other. But let's go to number six. Fathers, lead in faith with your family. Lead your family in faith. Verse 23, Jethro says this. If you do this, Moses, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. God will be with you, is what Jethro says. Notice that Jethro is not pretending as though Moses is going to be able to accomplish this on his own or endure it on his own. And I want to say this, fathers, the hero of your child's story, we know this, we're trying to teach them from a very young age, can't be your child, right? So you're not trying to lead your children to think more highly of themselves than they ought. And this is where fathers, you know, knocking your son down a peg, to go back to what I was saying earlier, is something that we do to make sure they don't think too highly of themselves. But I want to tell you this, the hero of your child's story can't be you either. I need to say that again. The hero of your child's story cannot be you either. Looks like this. Your kid turns 18, 19, graduates with honors, right? Go into this university, and you're like, how did it happen? Well, it started with baby Einstein when they were in the crib, and I put those headphones on them, and they were just reading to them. You know, I let, I let the word of God wash over them while my, all my contemporaries put brown noise on. I prayed for them often. I fasted for my children, prayed for their unknown sins. I put aside a, you know, a, a fund for their college. Regularly, I put money in it, extra, extra money. See, this is what we'll do unwittingly is we become the hero of our own story. And here, I'm not saying any of those things are bad, by the way. Rock on if you're already doing that. You're killing it. I'm saying that you can't be the hero of your child's story either, lest they look to you and not the Lord and all of your work burn up like wood, hay, and stubble because you will fail. And you can't be their God. Lastly, and this is for some of my, my fathers in the room with older kids. Verse 27 says, Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So number seven, fathers wisely withdraw their presence and their voice when the time and season is right. Fathers wisely withdraw their presence and voice when the time and season is right. 
you got to think about how difficult it must have been for Jethro to hear the story that a couple weeks ago, all these people tried to kill him with rocks. And then he watches him as he tries to lead these people morning to evening, knowing he is going to fail them again, and they're going to try to kill him again. And he gives him advice, and he's like, if you listen to me, it's going to work out much better for you. And then guess what he does? Jethro goes home. And it's not like going home, like, you know, we, maybe you have your parents that kind of live close. He goes to, like, Midian home. That's like I get on a plane, and, and there's no FaceTime. There's no, I'm going to call you up, give you, give you some coaching, some one He goes home. And isn't this difficult if you're a parent in the room, then you can drive with this. But recognizing that even though you may have been on the field with your child, teaching them how to play the game, you've moved into, you're just with them in the huddles and then onto the sidelines and a coach, that at some point you're just going to be in the stands. All watching, no doing. And that if you try to stay on the field too long, you hinder them. If you leave the field too early, you hinder them. And man, isn't it a, a, talk about a tightrope walk. And yet Jethro has the wisdom to know that he has to learn to give Moses the space to walk in obedience and righteousness apart from him and to apply his words. This begins really early with your kids, right? If you're a father in the room, you get this, right? Maybe like, when's the day that you stop putting on your kids' underwear for them? And that's not as, you don't tear up when that day happens, by the way. But you do tear up when you see them move their tassel over, don't you? You do tear up whenever you take the trailer to their college dorm or something, they unpack it, and you're like, oh, are you ready to give them a really emotional hug, and they don't want you to hug them. And you're like, get over here and hug me now, you know? But you can't. And so Jethro operates in wisdom, and he just goes home. And I, I want to make one key point here before we move to the four, and that is this. Jethro doesn't try to step in and do it for Moses. He doesn't try to say, get out of my way and let me go ahead and handle this. He gives him advice and then he walks away. And there's wisdom there. Okay, so we're going to move from the doing to the being though. There's a portion of scripture here in this story that Jethro gives out to Moses the ingredients of the men he should look for to share the load with him. And I think they are the ingredients of masculinity. Let's read them together. Starting in verse number 19, he says, Obey my voice, and I'll give you advice, and God be with you. Moses, you shall represent the people before God. You'll bring their cases to God, and you should warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they should walk and what they must do. But verse 21, Moreover, or also, or importantly, on top of that, you should do this. Look for able men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. Able men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. Let's walk through those together. Now, before I get into the last three, where I want to spend most of my time is, number one is able man. It's the only one that's a skill. And it gives this inclination that there's some, there's some, there's some skill to masculinity at some level, that you have to be able to do something. And I don't really want to spend much time on it, but in particular, this judge role that they have to be in, they got to know the word of God. they got to know it well enough that they can communicate it. There's an ableness to this. But notice that it's like three measures character, one measure skill. You guys catch that? That's God's principle. Three measures who the man is, one measure how he operates. Because this is a, a function of fact in the Bible. Being produces doing. Who you are produces how you will act. It never operates in the opposite direction. What you do will not be a product 
or what, who you are will not be a product of what you do. What you do will be a product of who you are. Another way to put that very practically is a, true, a tree will bear fruit according to its kind. Does that make sense? The man that you are dictates the things that you'll do. So let's go through the last three. The first one is be a man who fears the Lord. Be a man who fears the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is a theme throughout the scripture. I mean like heavy. Old Testament, New Testament, all over the place. Be a man that fears God. In fact, Paul describes in the book of Romans that the, that famous verse, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He gives a litany of descriptions of what that looks like. And they're, they're, they're ven- the venom of asps is under their lips. It's really intense. He finishes that out, say, why are people sinful? And he says, because the fear of God is not before their eyes. So fearing God is kind of a central. So what does it look like? Well, a man who fears the Lord takes the word of God seriously. He uses the word of God as the measure or the ruler, the rule of life in his household. At the end of the day, when decisions are made in the household, it's not on the basis of the father's greatest wisdom on his own. It's on the basis of the truth of God's word. What has God said about this thing? Number two, a man who fears the Lord takes sin seriously. A man who fears the Lord knows that sin separates him from God and seeks to destroy us. And a man who fears the Lord understands this and acts accordingly. Like, for instance, if you wake up and there's a snake in your bed, you don't roll over and say, I'll handle it in the morning. Number three, a man of God who fears the Lord takes community seriously. He doesn't need to be coaxed into coming to a church by anyone else because first and foremost, he knows he must be there to worship the Lord. He longs to be there. And community in the sense that he knows he can't bear this burden alone. Moses, you cannot bear this burden alone, Jethro says. There's no way you'll bear this burden alone. A man of God who fears the Lord takes the calling and commands of God seriously. If God has spoken and given him direction, he trembles at those words. Isaiah 66, one says, This is the man to whom I will look, he who is humble, he who is contrite, and trembles at my word. And finally, I want to say this. Men, fathers, if you do not, a man who does not fear the Lord, a father who does not fear the Lord, will teach his children and they will learn to fear everything else. If you're a father who doesn't fear the Lord, your children will fear every other thing. A lot of scary things in the world. But if you learn to fear the Lord, your children will fear the Lord too. Okay. Number two, be a man who is trustworthy. Be a man who is trustworthy. A trustworthy man is a man who patterns his life in such a way that gives confidence to those around him that he will not treat with frivolity that which his neighbor treats with sacredness and care. Let me say that again. A trustworthy man is a man who patterns his life so that it's clear to everyone if his neighbor treats something with care, he will not treat it trivially. Let me give you examples. Who is the man that you will share secrets with? Most likely the one that you know will keep them. Who is the man that you'll loan money to, guys? Here's one that'll be true to you. The one that you know will pay you back. (laughs) Most likely. Who's the man that you'll ask to watch your house when you're out of town? Most likely the man you know who won't rob your house the moment you get outside of the county lines. Right? Who's the man that you will let your children stay at their house overnight? It's the man that you know who would lay down his life for your children if it came to it. 
and I could go on. That's what it means to be trustworthy. Being a trustworthy man takes time, and earning people's trust means diligent and active participation in living honorably and transparently before others. One of the most difficult things about trustworthiness is that it's built over time and it's destroyed in a day. If you've ever tried to like build a shed in your backyard, you know it took you a lot longer to build that shed than tear down the old one that was in its place. Tearing it down is quick, building it's long and arduous. And then finally, number three here, or number four, depending upon the way you're looking at it, is be a man who hates a bribe. Be a man who hates a bribe. That's an interesting one there because it's not something that you would like write down on your mirror or in like a coffee mug or something, you know. It's not like super motivational. You don't see us on Facebook, like I'm a man that hates a bribe. You know, it's a picture of you with grass behind you. And why does the Bible say that? Well, here's something that people don't know is that in the same way that the Bible's kind of chocked full of fear of the Lord, it's chocked full of this line. The Proverbs has it many times. A man who is righteous hates a bribe. Why? A bribe is an offer to do what you know is not right for personal gain. It often takes the form of money, but I just want to make mention of this. It doesn't have to take the form of money. There are many forms of payment that are offered to a righteous man to coerce him to give up his integrity. Satan is a master of bribes. When a man takes a bribe, he gives away his integrity, and what he receives in return becomes only a token reminder of what he lost. I want you to notice here that the Bible never says that we merely should not take part in bribes. It says that the man of God must hate a bribe. He must have vicious feelings toward bribes. Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, and we all know the story. That silver ended up on the floor of the temple once Judas realized the value of what he had given away. He couldn't even bear to keep the token reminder of his betrayals, and so he threw his silver at the feet of the priests, and they didn't want it either, so they spent it on a field that was called the field of blood. The first sin recorded in Genesis 3 is a bribe of sorts. Satan coerces Adam and Eve to trade their right relationship with God in order to become gods themselves, and it's not until they make that deal that they realize how empty the promise actually was. I can go on with this. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and Satan's offer is, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you would but worship me. It's a bribe. Satan's a master of bribes because his end game is accusation and shame. The bribes that Satan offers always seem desirable, but they become the tools for our enslavement. Once you've made the deal, now you are subject to the shame and guilt that result from the deal, and now you will have a perpetuating participation in future trade-offs, future bribes that you maybe will cover your track so that others don't know of the shame that you intuitively feel. And he keeps this cycle going as long as he can. So Jethro knows this. If you're going to set a judge up and they don't hate a bribe, they will fall. Masculinity requires that we must hate a bribe. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that we have been privy and party to bribes before. And so what we have is Christ offers us a way out of our enslavement, a way out of the bribe trap. And he says it like this, he offers us unconditional grace and forgiveness if we would just come to him in faith and repentance. And he wipes the record clean so that when the accuser comes, he has no way to keep you in the cycle of shame. And he introduces to you a way out of the bribe cycle. That's the point. Now, I want to end with the one. 
We've gone seven and then four or three, depending on the way you look at it, and now one. What's the one way? Because when I read this, I'll be honest with you, as I was preparing for this sermon, my thoughts were to be endued with this kind of task as a man is beyond what I can bear. I, I didn't write this with like, let me write the things that I'm really good at. So I was writing the sermon. I'm like, I, if I had that choice to go the Pharisee route, it would be an entirely different sermon. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is his words to the Corinthian church. He's just went four chapters of pretty solid Jethroing these guys. And he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. That's wonderful, isn't it? I want you to hear that. This admonition from Jethro here is not to make men ashamed, but to admonish you as what? My beloved children. Now you got to underline that because he doesn't say as God's beloved children. He says as his beloved children. Verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, that is translated teachers in other translations, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. Paul says, you have many people that are willing to teach you. You have many people that are willing to guide you. You have many people that are willing to give you advice, but you have not many fathers who are willing to die for you. They're willing to live with you. They're willing to walk with you. They're willing to lay their lives down. I'm your father is what he says here. And then he attaches that fatherhood to one characteristic, which is of course imitation. So follow me. Now, when I hear that, I'll be honest with you. I don't have that courage to tell every single person that's a Christian, follow me as I follow Christ. Because if they follow me, they may fall off a cliff sometimes. I found myself at the bottom of a cliff a few times. I don't know about you. And thanks be to God that I got pulled out of it. So what gives Paul this confidence that he can say with confidence, imitate me as a father? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, this is the way. And ladies, if you're not a father, this is where you can kind of, man, this is for every Christian. How is it that you can be, and then from that being, do the things that God's called you to do? And the answer is this to understand who your father is. See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. For as many years as I've been a Christian, Father's Day has always mostly reminded me of this, that we have a heavenly father. The invitation to be reconciled to that heavenly father was given by our older brother Jesus through his broken body and shed blood. So you may be saying, I want to engage faithfully in being a father. How do I do that? And here's what I want to tell you. Unless you first address the role as son or daughter, we can never, ever be faithful, spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, earthly fathers, earthly mothers. First, we have to address the issue of how are we doing as sons, as daughters? And I don't mean of your earthly father. Much counseling is spent trying to figure out how you can reconcile with the difficulties of your past. And I'm not trying to minimize that. Some of you may have stories with your earthly fathers that would make us shudder. But here's what I'll tell you. You'll never reconcile that story with your earthly father who harmed you until you first come to grips with your relationship with your heavenly father. And there's one way that has been offered. And the key to the door has already been bought and paid for by Christ. It's literally an invitation into being called child, being called son, being called daughter by faith. So that with your relationship with your heavenly father, it begins to impact and infect every other area of your life. But until you deal with that one, there's no hope. 
I'm telling you, there ain't, there ain't enough self-help books on the Barnes & Noble shelves. You can't go to Amazon and search for enough seven steps to deal with your daddy issues until you deal with your heavenly daddy issues. And good news, Jesus dealt with them for you. And tell, let me tell you something. You thought you had baggage with your earthly dad. We had some baggage with our heavenly father. Jesus dealt with it all on the cross for us. And so I want to end with that, this invitation to you this morning beyond leaving out of here with seven new things that you know you're not doing right or four different character attributes that you know full well your wife knows you don't have. I want you to leave out of here with the invitation that your heavenly father calls you his son, invites you in. That relationship, that that direct invitation goes out to you even now. And it's not just to men in the room, it's to the ladies in the room. And it's not just to the earthly dads in the room, it's to the earthly mothers. And it's not just to mothers, it's to the single people in the room. And it's not just the single people, it's the teenagers in the room. And not just the teenagers, it's the children that our children's ministry workers are talking to right now. And the message is the same, your heavenly father calls you home to himself. And you can be certain that that relationship cannot be frayed because of the sacrifice of Christ. Romans chapter number eight, neither height nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come will ever separate you from the love of Christ in who? God the Father. Or the love of the Father in Jesus Christ. You can't be separated from that love. And so I want to invite you into that. It's the final way. And I pray that you're encouraged by it this morning. Let me pray. Father, we come to you in that title with that name because Jesus invited us to call you that. Creator of the universe, we can call you Dad or Abba Father. What a privilege it is. I pray for those under the sound of my voice now. Particularly, I want to pray for all the dads in the room. Would you take off the weight of guilt and shame and place on their shoulders that wonderful purposeful calling. They would no longer be accused by the enemy, but they would feel the freedom to know that you have loved them perfectly and they can imitate you by imitating Christ. Father, I also just want to pray for everyone else under the sound of my voice who may have a million relational issues. I ask that today you would remind them the number one relationship is the one that's already been reconciled by Jesus. And they would receive the invitation this morning to enjoy the communion and unity of being in right standing and right relationship with you. And finally, that we might leave out of here on Father's Day with the reminder that to be called children of God and to be able to call you Father is the greatest single privilege we've ever been given. So God, help us to sing about it now. Enjoy. Enjoy.